Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome everyone to another episode of Theology Matters, and I am your host, Devin Blue. and boy, are we glad you joined us today. We have a very good show coming up. Uh, we are going to be joined again by Dr. Uh, Gregory Sadler, and today we're going to be looking at the discussion uh, of 
of course, the importance of Christian philosophy, uh, but the 1930s debates with Christian philosophy in France about the and about the broader question of um, how the 1930s debates inform our present-day thinking. <clears throat> Dr. Sadler is a very brilliant man. Uh, we've had him on the show several times. He's kind of doing a lot of uh, different series for us. Um, just on different philosophical topics. Uh, We were doing kind of a great thinkers of the past series, and he came on and spoke about uh, St. Anselm and Thomas Aquinas. And I believe he also did one on David Hume. So we're we're looking at all of kind of the great thinkers who have looked uh, or shaped, shaped kind of a, the philosophical ideas of today. So anyway, he'll be on here in about 30 minutes, so you don't want to miss that. And real quick, if you've not been on our Facebook page, just go to uh, Theology Matters with the Palouse. You can look us up there on Facebook. And on there, we we have a lot of different uh, podcasts that we've done. We've been in the show for um, over three years, actually, now, and just passed our 100th episode uh, a few weeks back. And on there, you'll find a lot of shows that we've done. We've had Dr. Norman Geisler on. We've had Paul Copan. Uh, of course, recently, we just had a slow, uh, whole slew of people with uh, Stephen Meyer and uh, Ken Sample, as well as Jay Warner Wallace. So be sure to check out those shows. As, uh, they're very, very informative and uh, just a, a great conversation. So... Well, real quickly, uh, September, I believe it is the 25th. Let me just double check here. But Southeastern is, uh, yes, it's Friday, September uh, 25th, and we'll go into Saturday, September 26th. Those in the the North Carolina area, uh, Nine Marks is going to be having their annual conference there at Southeastern. And... You know, folks, if you're not familiar with Nine Marks, uh, I really, really suggest that you look them up and and get into some of their stuff. Mark Dever is kind of the guy that um, <clears throat> heads everything up over there. And they really focus on what makes a healthy church. What is a healthy church? What makes a healthy church? And they basically outlined uh, at least nine marks of a healthy church. And so every uh, every year at Southeastern, they do a conference uh, on one of the nine marks. The last year was church membership. You know, we live in a day and age today where uh, Christians think church membership is optional. And uh, I think it's just a, it's a very poor understanding of of, um, of ecclesiology. And so this year is actually going to be looking at church discipline. Uh, when should it be administered? How should it be administered? Um, what's the purpose of church discipline? So those in the area, um, check out uh, the conference at Nine Marks. It'll be at uh, Southeastern. So with that being said, I wanted to bring my first guest on. He's a very good friend of, of mine. I've known him for quite a while now through the uh, technology of Facebook. And uh, just a great guy and uh, a good man if I wanted to bring him on and let him tell you a little bit about his story. So, uh, Jonathan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, Devin. It's an honor. It's a real honor to be on this program. Thank you. 
Uh, it's a real honor to have you on the program for sure. So just tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do, and uh, how did you uh, how did how did the Lord save you? <laughs> that's a that's a good question. You know, I um I currently work as a as a pastor. I entered full time ministry about a year and a half ago. And before that, I worked in the, the legal field. I was, a, I was a paralegal for about 10 years, um, various different types of law. And my, my story really starts with uh, um, I was raised in, in Massachusetts, uh, a town called Plymouth, about 35 minutes south of Boston. And uh, you'll notice that I start to talk funny when I get nervous, so my, uh, I might start throwing a, a, a northeast accent at you. And <laughs> I do apologize, but, um, but yeah, so, so, you know, I, I grew up in a, you know, wishy-washy family as far as faith goes. And eventually that led me to, uh, through a series of events in my own life to, um, what I would have classified as a pursuit of, uh, of truth. And it actually landed me into atheism. And uh, so through high school and then in the college in my early adult life, I was a pretty uh, ardent atheist. I, I would have loved to get in conversations with people about my atheism. Specifically, I'd love to get in conversations with Christians uh, to tell them how wrong I thought they were. And I did quite a bit of that. And what I was finding is that most of the time the Christians that I was talking to couldn't really give me any solid answers to to any of my questions that I thought were um, intellectually honest and rigorous and it, my most of my conversations ended with uh, well the bible says and to me that was the same as saying you know oh well batman or doonesbury says like it doesn't matter you know and uh and then um as all good stories go i i ended up moving from washington dc to california i met a girl <laughs> and um and she's now my wife and she was a christian and i through a series of more events, you know, I, I, I fell in love with her and she asked me to go to church with her. And I've done crazier things to the affections of a woman and um, got, went to church with her for the first time and really thought it was weird. It was strange, Devin. Like, I mean, church is weird. <laughs> so it didn't convert me right away. And uh, she, she wanted to become a member of this church in Studio City. And okay. I was uh, I was going to go with her to these membership classes. And my purpose was to learn more about the Christian faith so I could tear it down. Wow. And the, the ending of the membership class, uh, the requirements to become a member is you had to meet with the pastor, the head pastor and his wife. And I sat down with my then girlfriend, my now wife, and we shared our stories and my wife's story is incredible. And then I came prepared with a, <laughs> I mean, I'm talking a notepad full of evidence against the existence of God. I was going to destroy this pastor's faith. And, wow. um, and so we had a, a pretty heated conversation that lasted maybe about an hour. And he answered everything really honestly, which, is, which was so perfect. You know, in hindsight, I see that God was moving through this man, um, not through him providing the answers, but just being real and honest. So I'd ask him questions that he just didn't know the answers to. And uh, he would say, I don't know. When he didn't know, he would try to answer things to the best of his ability, but I respected that at least. Right. And so at, 
at the end of the conversation, you know, everybody stands up in the room and he and his wife hug my wife and offer her membership to the church. And uh, Pastor Dave takes my hand in his and he's shaking my hand and he says to me, you know, John, we have enough members right now. We don't really need you. <laughs> so wow. He, and it's a good thing because if he had offered me membership at that, membership at, at that time, I would have I would have thought it was a joke. But right. um, as he did that, he turned me towards his bookcase and he handed me uh, a book called Can Man Live Without God by Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if you've read it. Um, but it, for the first time, started to give me some intellectual, robust answers to the questions that I thought I first knew the answers to, and second, I thought that they destroyed any possibility of the existence of God. So that book I read, and I read it again and again, and through uh, wow. through his words and then through his uh, podcasts, I uh, started really rethinking my faith, my, my faith of atheism. And the cracks were starting to be formed in my foundation. And that's when life really started to get interesting for me. I was given a Bible, which I used to take the Metro here in Los Angeles. Everybody in Los Angeles thinks you're crazy if you don't drive a car. And uh, <laughs> I just didn't drive a car. I drove the Metro. But when I was on the Metro, I was reading. And I read the Bible. And when I had questions, I stopped and I researched and I really pressed into it. Similar, similarly, like 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 to what Lee Strobel would say he did, or even Jay Warner Wallace, you mentioned him in the intro, I wanted to disprove this stuff. I didn't want it to be true. So on my journey, I sought out to disprove it. But what happened is, is if, if I was being honest, um, it was true. And then I um, did a pretty in-depth study of the resurrection, and that was the, the final straw for me. And uh, Jesus was raised from the dead, and you know, what Paul says, I mean, everything hinges on that. So when right. I found that Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead as a historical <clears throat> fact, I could no longer sustain my atheism. And not only that, but I realized life for me had to change. Um, you see, at the yeah. time I was, I was trying to live out my atheism as well. You know, I was a total hedonist. Um, really, I was really trying to live according to the atheist philosophy which is almost impossible. I mean, it's impossible. You can't do it. You know, there's uh, no meaning, no value uh, on, on, on life, um, no purpose, you know, no destiny. You know, those life's, the, the life's most important questions for me, once I started really pressing into atheism, went either unanswered or led to really dark places. And, uh, you know, the Lord used uh, a number of people in my life uh, almost immediately um, upon conversion, you know what, I, in hindsight, I've been thinking about this lately. I'm not even completely sure. I had heard the explicit gospel, and I had oh. already enrolled at Biola in, in their master's in apologetics. So I was at a master's program at one of the best programs for it, um, and I'm learning this stuff for the first time, and I'm sitting there in class learning and, and listening and, and arguing with the professor because I wasn't, I don't even know if I was completely regenerate at the time. And, uh, and so I, right away, I just jumped into the deep end, which is what I normally tend to do. And, uh, I got great training there. Uh, more than that, I, I had, uh, my professors, 
uh, I don't know if you have interaction with any of the Biola professors, but they're pastors at heart, and they really mm-hmm. did a lot of soul care with me and helped me not just find the factual answers, not just the head stuff that's there, but then they really helped me find the spiritual answers that we all cry out for, that we've been made mm-hmm. for. And they really helped transform my life. And then my wife is obviously a huge part, a huge encouragement. And then um, I worked in a law firm. I was working at a law firm that was awesome. They they straight up let me proselytize. It was great. So I was having faith conversations in the office, making a difference in my office, I'd like to think, uh, for the kingdom. And then my local church, Living Oaks Church, in, uh, I live out in Thousand Oaks now. It's about 45 minutes north of L.A., um, our head pastor, Doug Posey, is he, he, he digs into the deep things of faith. So he always uh, uh, emphasizes apologetics, digging and pressing into the faith. It's a church I love, and our position here opened up for um, the community pastor to come in. And, uh, the, you know, God opened doors, and my wife and I prayed, and we, we took the position. So it's about, about a year and a half. Um, and wow. I've been Christian. All this happened over the span of, gosh, I'd say I've been Christian for just under nine years. And uh, I'm on the highway, man. I love it. It's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great, just a great uh, story of God's redemption in your life. I think that's that's why we do these, you know, to bring people on just to hear and and be encouraged how God is uh, is working uh, with that. So. It's it you know what it, it's so cool and then you guys have to be um, commended okay theology matters should be commended it's a uh, I, I love listening to you guys and it's radio programs and ministries like what you guys are having and I know that you do minister with Ratio Christie as well and they're so important because Christian apologetics is a field that for so long I think went neglected it's been overlooked you know and right. the results of that have been this watered down uh, faith this watered down Christianity. And um, we start relying on feelings, you know, and emotion. And then when you really, when you dig into the faith, there's such a robust, oh, my gosh, like you can just dig your teeth into it and be sure that it's true. We can have confidence in our faith um, through philosophical pursuits, through scientific mm-hmm. pursuits, through historical pursuits. And we don't have to rely on this, uh, this, this watered-down, soft gospel that we hear so much. And and like I said, you and your wife, you guys are on the front lines, and it's so awesome to see you guys and the impact that you guys are having on people through this ministry as well as your ministry uh, through Ratio is you have no idea how much encouragement I get, uh, I take from you guys. Well, you guys are incredible. Well, I really, really appreciate those uh, those words, Jonathan. It uh, means a lot. It definitely means a lot to us for sure. And. It's just good to, to to be encouraged by by other believers, for sure. And it's you know that's what I really appreciate too. The fact you're a pastor, you know that's that's uh, that's my great desire is, is to hopefully one day be able to be a pastor and to see that that pastors are you know getting involved in apologetics. That I think is just it's it's so rare, uh, but it's so awesome to to see uh, when that happens. How does how does your church uh, respond to? <laughs> Uh, apologetics. I'm sure you're you're there and you're able to kind of incorporate some of that in there. That is, um, <clears throat> again, this is a God thing. So, gosh, it's probably, I'll say six years ago, 
um, we, I was online. No, I was at, I was in Apiola, and one of my professors was coming out to a church in Thousand Oaks to speak. I wasn't living out here. I was living in San Fernando Valley, and he was speaking at this church, Living Oaks, which is kind of weird, now where I work. <laughs> um, and they, every year at church here, uh, do a Get a Grip series is what we call it. It's coming up in January, and we get people that come. Okay, we've had uh, J.P. Moreland. We've had Michael Behe. Uh, this year, we're getting uh, Jay Warner Wallace's book, uh, Sean McDowell's book, Mike Lacona's book. And so the church, our church, the demographic here really embraces it. And I think it probably stems from, um, I would say, our head pastor, Doug Posey. He, uh, he's intellectually rigorous. He preaches the word of God unashamed and unabashedly. Uh, the gospel is in every one of his messages, and he preaches it hard verse by verse, and he doesn't shy away from the intellectual pursuits. He actually encourages it. So the, Wonderful. People, that we, the people that we attract from the community are going to be people who want that. They want their intellectual minds. They want their minds appealed to, not just their hearts. And it's created something really special. So, so here the church is, I mean, they're all about it. I, I taught, a, um, we have these core essential classes, and the first one that we did was an apologetics one, uh, Four, four weeks, I believe, and we had about 130 people there, which is wow. insane. And uh, that's just so cool, you know, to, to see that many people chasing after God in, a, in an intellectual way, like I said before. And it's not just a, it's not just a heart issue. Right. It's a mind right. issue. And, and you know, when it, how are we transformed? We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's right. And, uh, and it's well, so, like it, you it, said, it's awesome. Yeah, when you when you're saying there that it, it it kind of does come down from the from the leadership and the pastor sets the tone and uh, I know you know with our Bible studies uh, that I've led for the last several years with young college students there's a lot of different college ministries around but the people you know when they come to our Bible study they know you know we're going to go verse by verse through the Bible we're going to study apologetics we're going to get into the things of the Trinity. And what you see pretty soon is you have a group full of people, young people that are coming, and they're ready to, to, to sit down and do a two-hour Bible study. And Isn't what that it awesome? is is, oh, it is. It is you set the tone for the kind of people you're going to attract, you know. So if, you, if all you give is, is fluff and kind of um, a good show because you're wanting to build numbers, then the, the, the problem is with that, you, that's what you have to keep giving them. <laughs> that's what you get them to get them there. That's right. You have to keep getting them to get them to stay. And so, you know, it's hard to be able to ever get into the deep things of God if the people you're attracting never wanted that in the first place. You know? You should, uh, so so I'm going a, I'm to a throw a, a bone out to, to somebody I have so much respect for. He works with me. His, his name is Austin Axon. He, he's our youth minister here. He's our, he's our pastor of a high school. And Something really cool just happened. This is this this speaks to the, the what we're doing here at Living Oaks Our Church. So they just went to a camp. They went away to a camp, and the teaching at the camp was questionable. And and his students were going up to the speaker, confronting him with his teaching wow. and and saying, "You haven't even opened your Bible. Like that's not the gospel. That's not like here." He, Paul says this. You know, James says this, and and, wow. and these are high schoolers. You know what I mean? And and they sit there, and it's because what's happening is you said it before. It's the leadership. 
So you have, you have a solid biblical teacher, a Bible teacher, uh, teaching uh, the hard things, you know, going into philosophy with them, not shying away from uh, hot topics like, you know, homosexuality, abortion, these things. And also not only that, but showing these, these students, these kids, how our Christian faith should permeate every area of our life. It's a worldview, right? It's not just a, right. it's not just something for home or Sunday mornings. Yeah. And and it's so cool. And and the whole church, like our church staff embraces that. And it's it's this is actually Greg Kokel's home church. Wow. So that's like um, so you know so Greg Greg church. comes here. He actually just taught dude, he just taught on the Trinity, one of the best teachings on the Trinity I've ever heard this last Sunday. Like unbelievable. Wow. So we're blessed by we're now blessed I'm to have jealous. that in our DNA. You know, so it's Yeah, yeah. It's, now I'm jealous. <laughs> Man, we're, I think we might be still hiring a, a middle school pastor if you're interested. <laughs> but then you'd have to move. <laughs> yeah, then I would have to move. That's right. Uh, that's that's really good. You know, one of the things that you say is, I just you know, as, a, as you're talking about your kind of your journey there, um, as you were you were a skeptic and you were looking at these things. I'll never forget. Uh, I was at Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I go to where I go to school. Uh, they're hosting mm-hmm. a debate between Michael Kona and Bart Ehrman. Yeah. And I've been a Christian for a few years now, uh, but I just remember really being nervous in a sense because knowing I'm gonna I'm really gonna hear probably if anybody can debunk the resurrection, this is the guy that can probably do it. And so I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, Lakota's probably uh, next to Gary Habermas, probably the best guy maybe in the world that is going to defend the resurrection. So I'm thinking I'm really going to see what happens here and see, what you know, when both are put to, to, the, to, the, to the test, what happens. And I remember after listening to that debate and sitting in that chair thinking, you know, I just heard the very best that the atheists mm-hmm. have to offer and man, Christianity withstood it. The resurrection was well, Mike yeah. Lacona did a great job that debate, and he really, really showed, you know, that uh, the resurrection uh, can take all the scrutiny that uh, even someone like a Bart Ehrman can give it. And at the end of the day, you know, yeah, there's questions, uh, you know, regarding inerrancy, et cetera, that I think can be answered and resolved. Uh, but just as far as kind of a mere Christianity approach, we want. We we won that debate and we won that we won it well, and I just I just remember thinking that so I, it's it's interesting as you say with yourself, really looking into it and testing it. I think sometimes atheists maybe they think we're just saying that uh, I don't know, but it it really is true. There's been so many Christians, hasn't there, uh, like yourself, who've gone in to, to disprove it, and they end up walking away totally changed, completely changed. I mean. So when when scripture tells us that we're made new, you know, we're completely transformed. We're completely made new. And it's it's so cool to see how God does that. And we can be so confident. Um I I've seen that that Lacona debate and um I love all of I love I, I, William Lane Craig, right? I love seeing these debates where you know, ask the hard things. Because we don't want to believe something that's false. Like I don't. Since I even when I was an atheist, I didn't want to believe something if it was false. We have uh, w- the way we've been made is to pursue truth. We don't want to be lied right. to, and we don't want to live a life of a lie. And um, 
and I love the fact that we worship a God who, who tells us to test all things. And we, we worship a God who, uh, like I said, through, through Paul, says that if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is also in vain. But then he goes on to say that we're to be pitied above all men. And, and he's basically, Paul, uh, you know, a father of the faith, is telling us that if these things aren't true, don't believe them. Because we don't right. want to be number one. We don't want to. We don't want to believe something that's false. More than that, in in that passage. So so in First Corinthians fifteen, where he's discussing that, he's also saying that it's it's an offense to God because it doesn't mean God doesn't exist if Jesus isn't raised. It means that we're worshiping a false god, and right. that means we have to start a pursuit over. That means we need to look at Islam as if it was true. That means we have to look at these other religions. But because the historical evidence is so. It's just, it's just so sure. We can live a life of uh, a Christian life dominated by that worldview and be sure that it's the right life. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. First Thessalonians uh, 5.19 commands us test all things uh, and hold fast to that which is good. And that's one of the beauty, beauties of Christianity is we are to, to test it or to test claims. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, Religion that that expounds that there is an absolute truth, it's objective, and, you know, either God exists or God does not exist. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he did not rise from the dead. But that's one of the beauties of the faith is it can be tested. But, uh, right. Jonathan, appreciate you coming on, brother. Um, we need to get you back on the show and do a, do a full show with you uh, if, you're, <laughs> if you're open for that. That'd be That'd be a lot of fun, I think. No, I, I would love to have come on anytime. And like I said to you and your you and your lovely bride, you guys are doing some serious work for for uh, for kingdom work here and now. And I want to be an encouragement to you, however I can. And I encourage your listeners reach out to these these uh, these two brothers and sisters because they can use the encouragement. Be praying for them, and uh, you guys are amazing. I love the ministries that you guys have going. So stay strong, brother. I really, really appreciate the encouragement and the kind words, my friend. We'll keep in touch and look forward to uh, having you on again soon. All right. Have have fun with Dr. Sadler. All right. God bless. All right, folks. And what we're going to do is take just a short break for us to transition. So excited. We have Dr. Sadler in the the queue, and he's coming up. And we are going to be looking at the debates of the 1930s uh, with Christian philosophy. So stay with us. We'll be right back. We're people who will die without God's word. Left to ourselves, we will perish forever. So expositional preaching is what God has given us to tell us the truth about himself and ourselves, to tell us the gospel. Expositional preaching is critical when it comes to being a faithful pastor, when it comes to being uh, a faithful leader of God's people. Uh, As pastors, we're called to not just preach, but to preach God's word, to preach the gospel. Expositional preaching is making the point of a passage of Scripture the point of your message. Making the point of the biblical text the point of the sermon. It's exposing God's word to God's people. Well, I don't have a mandate to preach what I want to preach. I have a mandate from God to preach His Word. And, and the best way to do that, I think the most faithful way to preach the Scriptures is to preach them exposition, to expand what God has already said to His people. Right there in one of his last letters to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word. Uh, in fact, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, you know, 
who is, is going to appear. Do this. So before you do anything else, Timothy, do this. Preach the word. It helps people to actually understand the Bible for themselves. They can actually get from the text exactly what the text says. And as a result, they learn to read the Bible for themselves. It's deriving uh, the meaning of the text and giving it to the people as a banquet, as a, as a great supper on which to feed. Uh, for we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this exposition, preach, exposition preaching that helps us give the people every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the end of the day, I want my people reliant upon God's word, not upon my cleverness, not upon my personality, not upon uh, what they might think are particularly witty or insightful ways that I may communicate, but upon the word itself, for that's what will sustain their soul. All right, and that is uh, one of the uh, commercials for the Nine Marks Ministry, and they talk about the Nine Marks of Healthy Church, September 25th, 26th, Southeastern Seminary, up by uh, kind of the Wake Forest area. Be sure to come, folks. It is one of the best conferences that uh, you'll ever go to, because it really talks about uh, just the importance and the different marks that really do make a healthy church. Uh, this year, though, we'll be focusing again on church discipline, how that's to be administered, how that's to be done in a loving, careful way if it, you know, if it needs to be done. Uh, so join us for that. But uh, joining me on the line, I have Dr. Sadler. And let me introduce you to Dr. Sadler. He is an author and instructor at Murray's College. Uh, who received both his master's and his Ph.D. in philosophy from Southern Illinois Carbondale. He's also founder of Reason.io, an organization that brings philosophy into practice, making complex classical philosophical ideas accessible for a wide audience of professionals, students, and lifelong learners. Now, Dr. Sadler is a heavyweight, folks. We've had him on in the past, and he's done some amazing shows as we have uh, looked at to looked into St. Anselm, Thomas Aquinas. I think we've done David Hume as well, uh, but just always a great time. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the debates from the 1930s and kind of how that ties into uh, Christian philosophy. So, Dr. Sadler, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you very, very good. Yes, you hear me okay? I do, yeah. So it's good to be back on, on the show. And like you said, um, we're going to look at these uh, these really important debates that happened in France primarily in the 1930s about the, the whole idea of Christian philosophy. Yeah, let's, uh, let me ask you just maybe a couple questions real quick just for to kind of set it up for those who maybe have not uh, heard you before or really know kind of the stuff you do, but why should Christians study philosophy? You, you kind of hear today in the circles that, uh, you know, philosophy will lead you to atheism if you study that in college. Why should Christians study philosophy? Yeah, and I suppose that, that the way some people do or teach philosophy would probably um, <laughs> lead some to, to atheism. You know, the biggest problem, actually, uh, that I found in, in the profession, and I've you know I've been teaching now for about 15 years, um, is 
not so much of leading people anywhere, but of just turning people off from philosophy altogether. There's there's a there's a lot of people who you know just take one class and in intro to philosophy or ethics or something along those lines, and they happen to get a teacher who really isn't well suited for that class, and the teacher doesn't actually manage to to get them to believe anything that they didn't believe coming in. But uh, what the teacher does is gives them the impression that philosophy is just very boring or or is, is kind of a intellectual exercise for, for nerds alone or, you know, disconnected from, from their life. And, and it's unfortunate because that's the one chance usually in a college uh, career that, that we philosophers have a chance to reach people who aren't philosophers and get them into this, you know, two, two millennia old discipline that's that's got some really great stuff in it um but you're right there there is um you know there's quite a few let's call them you know movements or directions or, or approaches in philosophy that i think would probably lead somebody towards atheism the the the, the big question is is that all there is to philosophy and the, the answer to that is you know clearly, clearly no um you know we've had some really major Christian thinkers in the past who described themselves as, as philosophers. Some of the early church fathers, you know, Justin Martyr or uh, Lactantius, um, St. Augustine himself, you know, great example. All these guys are, are philosophers. And, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to be a philosopher in order to live out a uh, you know, a Christian life, and and um, Augustine himself in the in the on the Trinity says, or it's not on Trinity, it's on Christian doctrine. He says there's a lot of old ladies out there who've never actually read any scripture, let alone any philosophy, but they know more about faith, hope, and charity by having lived it out than any theologian I've ever run into, including himself, of course. So, oh. so you know, it's it's not it's not incumbent on anyone to have to study philosophy, but um, it certainly can be helpful, particularly, you know, when we're living in a culture where, you know, it's not as if there's a level playing field or as if everything is, is completely value neutral. Um, there's a lot of uh, messages that we're, we're constantly getting, you know, put before us because we live in this very media-rich culture. And philosophy can help us to, you know, not necessarily um, – make sense out of, out of all of them, but, but uh, a much higher proportion. So when philosophy actually functions in conjunction with Christian faith, it can be very powerful for helping people to understand the kinds of things that are going to come up inevitably. Um, it can also be something that winds up, you might say, um, perpendicular to or opposed to Christian faith as well. But it really depends on how you're doing your philosophy in that case, I think. Yeah, are you are you familiar with um uh Dr. Edward Fazer by chance? Mm-hmm. He's a he's a he's a very brilliant Catholic uh philosopher. And uh, he was he talked a little bit about kind of when he started uh his journey there into college and was taking philosophy courses and even actually after he was teaching and was was just saying that how so many times a lot of the the way that the arguments for God was presented really was kind of caricatures. They weren't really accurate. Uh, he yeah. hadn't really read, I guess, a lot of the work that had been put up. And so when challenged by a student to read it, um, he said that's, that's kind of what helped him almost reason into the faith 
was just seeing that uh, there really are good arguments, right, for for God's existence. Yeah. Some of the counter arguments weren't really that sound, I guess. I had a similar experience myself. I I left the church and came back to it during graduate school. And, I mean, as with any conversion story, there's always, you know, more than one factor at play, right? But um, one of the major factors for me was for the purposes of working on my Latin, which I had started, I, I started reading Thomas Aquinas, you know, his Summa in, in the Latin. And it was the same sort of uh, experience of, of seeing that these caricatures of Thomas's thought as just being, ah, he just takes Aristotle and kind of Christians it up were totally off base, that this was a brilliant guy who was able to assimilate, you know, literally hundreds of sources of, of thought and, and sift them. Um, and then I started reading Anselm in, in Latin because I wanted something that was a bit more of a rhetorical challenge, and I just fell in love with his, his thought as well. And so part of it was um, getting to see things from the vistas that they opened up, but it was also getting to see that... Um, you know, you could be a brilliant person and do really good philosophy and be a Christian, which I at that time thought you know, there was an incompatibility between the last two. If you're, if you're smart, you can't be a Christian. If you're a Christian, you can't be smart. And so these guys were, you know, prime examples of, of uh, or counterexamples, rather, uh, proving that that thesis wrong, you know. Right. Yeah. That's that's what's exciting, you know. We're doing Ratio Christi at uh, Winthrop University, which is uh, an apologetics ministry, just strictly, basically apologetics on the campus. And so, being able to introduce them to good Christian thinking and philosophy is, uh, man, it's done a, done a lot to help uh, be able to, I guess, weather the storm, so to speak, uh, of intellectual doubts that come. But uh, good stuff. Uh, just. Yeah, quickly I see there's there's a lot of stuff you're you're now doing. Uh, director of the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences Sciences at the Global Center for Advanced Studies. Yep, that's uh, uh, an entirely online institution that we're uh, we're building out right now. Wow, that is really something. And uh, for also folks, just uh, so you can look them up on YouTube. This is actually how I how I found Dr. Sadler was looking through his uh, YouTube videos and they're awesome. And uh, you now have over two million views, twenty thousand subscribers, and praise God, over seven hundred videos. So I actually often listen to them at night. Actually, some as I'm laying down and uh, I just I love listening to your to your lectures. So is there a particular place they can go to find it or just look you up or yeah, if you just Google um, Sadler philosophy, um, you, you know the YouTube channel will come up. If you if you search in YouTube for quite a few of the the thinkers that I work on, like Aristotle or or Aquinas or you know Plato, they'll they'll pop up inevitably as well because uh, they've got so many views. Um, yeah, yeah, and subscribe, folks. Uh, I really recommend that you subscribe to his to his channel and get all those updates. Uh, kind of some of the relevant stuff for today's show. Uh, you've actually had a book published by the Catholic University of America Press. Uh, I guess the title is Reason Fulfilled by Revelation, the 1930s Christian Philosophy Debates in France. 
so, and he's also written several articles, etc., uh, with Wikipedia or you no know, encyclopedia. <laughs> Good encyclopedia, not Wikipedia. So this is going to be this going to be a, a great show. I'm really really excited. Where can I get your book, Doctor Sadler? Well, you could order it from CUA Press, I suppose, but Amazon is probably a better way because they usually. When you know, if I when I've looked it up online, there's used copies that are cheaper than I'm buying it straight from the press. I hope Catholic University of America Press isn't listening to this, um, because I'm, well, they, they can they get, the, they get the, the sales no matter what, right? But um, yeah, I mean, just go on to Amazon and, and type it in, and it'll it'll come up. Um, there's also I've got two free things for for people who don't want to shell out um, you know fifty five plus dollars for for a big thick book. Um, if you go onto my academia.edu page and you, you just go into academia.edu and type in Gregory Sadler and I'll come up. There's a um, what's called a, a thematic bibliography about the uh, Christian philosophy debates and what a thematic bibliography is is it's a review of the literature that, that tells you something about what's, you know, what's going on in the pieces. So that, that's one good way to, to get a sense of it. And there's also the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, I've got an article or an entry there on the, the 1930s Christian philosophy debates. So it doesn't, these don't give you quite so much as, as the book does, uh, but, you know, they're free. So <laughs> that's the best price, really. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and uh, on your website, on your on your YouTube channel, I was looking through that uh, the other day, and I saw you actually have a lecture on this as well. I believe on the on this topic. I do, so. but I that's that's something I really need to you know set aside the time and, and do some more installations of that because I I started shooting some videos on it back when the book first came out in 2011, and okay. I, I promised videos I was going to like you know do a whole series on them and then I got drawn off in, in other directions with the video work um, but it, it's about time that I started shooting some some videos specifically on, on these debates because they really uh, they're really interesting and and uh, they deserve you know if I'm going to do videos on Aristotle why not do it on these guys too absolutely and uh, it's a big topic uh, so let's let's jump into it a little bit let's start with some of the some of the big picture or some of the uh, preliminaries. I'll just kind of hand it over to you and, and let you just kind of guide us. What time do you want to start taking calls, Dr. Sadler? Um, why don't we start taking calls around 730? Does that, that work for okay. you? Hey, sure, that works. earlier if we get through all the, the stuff before that. Okay, you just let me know when you're ready, and we'll open up the phone lines and those who want to who would like to uh, call in and talk with you. You normally get a lot of calls, so I'll just I'll leave that up to you. Okay. So if we're thinking about the really big picture, you know, the five-mile-up view, there's um, there's a couple different issues that you could put in the form of, of questions, like, you know, what's this about this Christian philosophy stuff? Or, you know, how are Christ- Christianity and philosophy somehow connected? So that's one big one. And then, you know, soon after that, somebody's going to ask, well, is this even possible? You know, doesn't doesn't reason rule this out or doesn't faith rule this out? Um, so that's something worth, worth talking about. Specifically with these debates, you know, I think that one of the questions that really has to be asked is, well, why did they happen when they happened? you know, in the 1930s and, and in France, 
And then, you know, we can also ask about, um, you know, did they actually arrive at any sort of conclusion? Like, is there one right position on, on the matter? And then, you know, I think for, for today's audience, because, you know, 1930s, we're talking 80 years ago, right? I, it's legitimate to ask, um, is this stuff, you know, still relevant? Why should we be reading these guys who we probably haven't heard of? Um, so if we let, – let's look at the first question about Christian philosophy or, or Christianity and philosophy somehow connected with each other. And this is already opening a huge can of worms. Um, there's a lot of, <laughs> lot of complex issues there. Right. So, you know, if you think about it, we know there's Christians today who work as philosophers. Um, and all you got to do is hang around with philosophers for a while, and you'll, you'll get to see whether or not they're, if they are Christians, whether their Christianity is actually connected with their philosophical work at all, or whether it's like, you know, sealed off in a compartment that only comes out at a certain time. Um, and so, you know, if we look at contemporary philosophers, there's some where they happen to be Christian, but it doesn't really mean anything as far as their philosophy. And then there's people that we can point to today, like, you know, in, in analytic philosophy, Alvin Plantinga, or in continental philosophy, somebody like Adrian Pepperzak, where it really makes a huge difference to what, what they're doing. So when we look back over history, we see that this is nothing new. You know, there have been... Um, there have been a number of philosophers whose work is, is influenced in its structure or its assumptions or its development by Christianity. Um, you know, a great example of that would be Rene Descartes, um, who, who many see as sort of a, a bad guy. Um, but he, he actually, you know, couched his meditations as being a work of Christian philosophy. And he thought that he was going to, um, you know, provide arguments for the existence of the, the soul and the existence of God and, and all sorts of, you know, traditional um, doctrines that, that at least he thought were <laughs> integral to, to Christianity. Um, he, you know, he, when it comes to things like uh, the nature of, of uh, communion, well, okay, Descartes is, is pretty far from, from where we might want to be, but, but he, you know, he's, he's a good example of somebody who, who's really you know, influenced by Christianity. You can't really have a Descartes without Christianity having been on the scene. Um, and, and we do have a few thinkers um, throughout history who call their work explicitly Christian philosophy, um, including some of the, the earliest Christian philosophers like Justin Martyr. He, he explicitly calls himself that. Um, so one of the things that – all this said, one of the things that I think it's important to point out is when we're talking about you know, Christian philosophy – and we start digging into it, we realize there isn't just one single question or issue or problem of, of Christian philosophy. There's really a whole set of, you know, connected issues. We probably won't parse all, all through them tonight, too, by the way, in, in a, you know, a one-and-a-half-hour sure. show. But we can hit some of the, some of the big ones. So right. let's, let's, let's look at the, the second thing, then. Um, one of the challenges that you know would not you know understandably arise almost immediately comes from two different directions. Um, some people would say, "Look, you just can't have anything like Christian philosophy. If it's Christian, it can't be philosophy because it would be irrational or dogmatic or you know pick whatever uh, pejorative adjective you like." Other people would say, well, if the Bible rules it out, um, so that puts an end to the question as well. And it's important to, to consider these, and they did that during, during these debates. 
So the the first challenge, it's a position that in the debates is called rationalism uh, in a French context, but nowadays we probably call it secularism. And sometimes it's it's sort of just a mindset that's not being named. It's just sort of the status quo. You'll find this in many philosophy departments where it's just sort of assumed that you, you can't bring religious questions in or you can't um, deal with religious topics because once you do that, you're veering over into something else, something outside of philosophy. And, th- you know, this view would say philosophy is is purely an activity of, of reason or of logical argument. Uh, religion itself is irrational or subjective. It relies on dogmatically assumed starting points, um, which are not convincing to those who don't don't already belong to that community. So it, it's not fair game. You can't you can't do that sort of thing, and call it philosophy. And and we see that this is something that the the thinkers during the debates dealt with very quickly because there were some people in the debates who represented that point of view. And it turned out that um, they weren't able to make the case very well. And, and, and you know, they were making the same sort of case uh, then as is being made now. The other challenge that's really interesting comes from the opposite direction. And that's people saying, yeah, but doesn't Paul say, you know, watch out for, for philosophy? You know, the, see it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, right. you know, these, these sort of passages. And, and we see Paul arguing with some philosophers in Acts. Um, it would be great if, if the author of Acts would have written a bit more about this. I would have, I would have loved to know what those debates actually were like. Like he, he, if he'd put in some, and then Paul said, you know, some some nice dialogue there. But we don't have that. So unfortunately, right. we know that Paul engaged um, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, That's and right. he thought that um, you know, they're worth taking. You know. Uh, uh, taking stock of it, you know. And then, um, you know, Paul also says that uh, you know, there's, you know, he hints at something like a natural theology, what we call na- these days natural theology in, in, in Romans, when he says that, um, you know, we can look at the universe and we can know something about about God through through that. Um, you know, and then you look back at the, the wisdom literature of the Bible, um, there's something there that is is quite philosophical, you know. The book of Job is essentially a philosophical dialogue about um the nature of of uh, good and bad and and how, you know, God is related to it, whether we can know anything about God and and you know, they they do a lot of reasoning during that that time. But also whether Job is a bad guy. <laughs> That's really a big big sticking point for for them. Um, but they're, you know, they're they're acting, they're they're talking to each other like philosophers. If you didn't know that it's a book in the Bible, um, one might say, yeah, this this sounds like uh, ancient wisdom literature, and it's an interesting bit of bit of uh, philosophy coming out of the, the Near East for that. So, you know, at the very least, we can't rule out Christian philosophy just by trying to define it away or by proof texting it away. So that means that you know we we really have to consider this. Um, Now, these debates are particularly interesting, um, and, and, you know, the the question we want to ask is, well, why did they they break out then? Um, And so this is actually kind of a a big topic. I I 
probably devote about 35 to 40 pages to, this, to answering that question in the book, you know, tracing out the, the whole prehistory and the causes and what's going on in the culture. Um, just to give a, a real um, sweeping, you know, uh, probably oversimplification, we'll say that it was there was a like perfect storm of factors coming together in the 20s and the 30s in in the French-speaking world. So it's, it's France and then also Belgium. There were a few Swiss involved in the debates as well. Um, and the, here's here's some of the factors because you know we can't again. I'm not going to try to summarize 40 pages worth of stuff. Um, so the French philosophical and cultural and political milieu in, in what we call the Third Republic, the, the French um, state at, at the time that these were happening, and really the entire um, early part of the century, um, was very anti-clerical. It, and it was, it was secularizing. It was anti-religious. France was itself torn apart by... Um, you know, the Dreyfus affair, which happened early on and then kind of polarized uh, institutions within France and then polarized groups of people. Uh, and and so the state was, was pretty, um, not just anti-Catholic, I mean, their main targets were the Catholics, but also um, Protestants as well. It just it was just in general anti-religious. So just to give you an example of this, um, one of the guys who played a major role in the debates, Maurice Blondel, he defended his dissertation. And back then, you actually had to write two dissertations, one in French and one in Latin. So he defended both of those. And back then in France, there was a centralized office where they would assign you your jobs. And so he goes there, and he's got his, you know, he, he's he's approved to teach. And the guy says, based on your dissertation, um, which was you know, accused of having smuggled in theology by the back door, I can't approve you to teach anywhere. So for two years, Blondell was like on, on ice. He couldn't teach. And then when they found him a spot, it wasn't in Paris where you know, everybody's trying to get to. Um, it was way out in the boonies. So it was sort of like being sent to the proverbial uh, Alaskan weather station in the Army. Um, this guy was brilliant, and everybody knew it, but he was he was a practicing Catholic, and he'd written a dissertation that that argued from purely philosophical grounds all the way to you know the necessity of engaging religion, and that didn't fly. So so that's that's an important aspect. Um, at the same time, there's this Catholic intellectual renaissance that's going on in France, especially, uh, but all across Europe from the late 1800s through the 1930s. And it's not, you know, sometimes people talk about it as like the Thomist revival, but it wasn't just um, neo-Thomists. It was Catholic thinkers all across the board. And they're all trying to, they're, they're all kind of struggling with the same basic ideas. How do you come up with a philosophy, a uh, philosophical approach that can take account of the modern world that we're living in, which is very different than you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and yet meet some of the demands that, that you know, the faith um, brings to us. And it was given a, a real impetus by this uh, encyclical by Leo XIII at Terni Patris, um, which was subtitled On the Restoration of Christian Philosophy. So that gets the, the idea into the air, and it, and it gave rise to new institutes of Catholic study, like at um, University at Louvain um, or neo-scholastic neo, uh, um, 
thinkers were were you know investigating the the medievals um institutes catholic institutes they're called the institut catholique in um in france were were established and so you've got you know sort of two big forces that are going to collide with each other you've got the the french philosophical establishment which is pretty secular and then you've got like this counterculture um that's becoming more and more articulate and and uh getting a lot of impetus behind it. Um, one thing that I'd like to mention as well, because uh, this song starts to sound like just, you know, a Catholic versus secular story. There was also a, an important reformed Protestant presence within the debate. And that gave rise to a later debate in, in largely in Switzerland in the forties and the fifties among reformed Protestants. There, the impetus came from the university at Strasbourg, and and the reason why Strasbourg mattered was um, it was one of the only French institutions that had a faculty of theology. And the reason it had a faculty of theology was because the Germans had taken it over for a while. <laughs> when when uh, it had been part of Germany, uh, and then when France gets it back, they, they had to keep that, that structure there. So, you know, French universities did not have theology, didn't have religious studies. That was part of the, the deal. Um, if you wanted to study that, you had to go somewhere else. Um, Strasbourg, which just happened to have you know a, a large percentage of, of uh, Reformed Protestants, um, you know a, people that we would now call Presbyterians or, or Reformed or things like that, um, they you know they ended up taking part in the debates. So you've got all that, and then add to it one more important factor which is that you've got this sort of interlocking set of uh, institutions and societies and journals. These guys are all reading each other's works and, and talking to each other. It's, you know, it's before the Internet, and before Netflix, and before the TV, so they had a lot more time on their hands. Um, but, you know, these are the kind of guys who are, they would have been reading each other's works anyway. And so, you know, as... This, this idea of Christian philosophy ends up being more and more in the air. Um, it's starting to sort of tick the rationalists, the secularists off. And also some of the Catholics, too, are like, there's no such thing as, as Christian philosophy. You guys need to shut up about this. Um, and other, you know, Catholics and, and even some Reformed Protestants, they're starting to argue with each other about what this would mean. So... Um, Pretty soon, this is going to lead to some actual debates, and the debates begin in 1931 with this um, session that the Société Française de Philosophie, the French um, Philosophy Society, had in Paris, and um, the guy who organized it, um, Xavier Lyon, he was also the guy who started uh, a very important journal called the Revue de Métaphysique et Morale. Um, and he proposed that that Gilson, Etienne Gilson, and and um, uh, um, Emile Braillet uh, should should sort of go to battle against each other about Christian philosophy. And so Gilson brought in his second, and, and Braillet brought in his second as well. And they mixed in a few other people, and, and suddenly it like you know turns into this this big debate because there, there's so many people that have things to say about it. By the time that it's done, there's about 50 different intellectuals who've weighed in on it. Um, as I was doing the research for this, I managed to, to you know photocopy about 
two file cabinet drawers worth of materials just on um, just in these debates. Um, wow. It, 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 it became such a big issue. It, ran, it really ran from about 1931 through 35. By the end of 35, people were, you know, they were saying, yeah, okay, we've, we've sort of hashed this out. Um, but, you know, it resulted in, in a number of books being published during the time. Um, one by Gilson, well, actually several by Gilson, one by Maritain, uh, one by Blondel, um, a number by some other people that that you know are kind of more minor figures, and so you know, the, so to go back to this big question, why did these debates happen in the 1930s? Well, you had all these factors sort of ready to to co- you know coalesce together and get this big um, discussion going, and they didn't really arrive at one single notion of Christian philosophy. Um, they did arrive at the conclusion that the, the whole idea that there isn't Christian philosophy, that's bunk. There, there is Christian philosophy. But then the question is, how do we characterize it? How, how should we understand this, this conception of it? And um, it, it's kind of funny because the most important pro-Christian philosophy guys involved in the debates routinely managed to misunderstand and, and, and get into opposition with each other. <laughs> they, you know, and so here we're talking about Maurice Blondel on one side and Jacques Maritain and Etienne Gilson on the other. And they had some historical bl- bad blood between them from some other things that had happened. We can, you know, I can talk about that in the Q&A if people are interested. Um, but these are really smart guys. They're also people who display a high level of charity towards just about everybody else that they run into, and yet they manage to like find themselves at loggerheads with each other and totally unable to to extend that charity to each other. Um, a lot of the other bit players in the debate said, "You know, you guys aren't seeing that your positions are not only compatible; they're actually complementary." We need we need your conception of Christian philosophy that you guys have over here, Gilson and Maritain, and we also need Blondel's conception, and we got to put them together. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a uh, uh, an important thing that came out of it. Um, and you know, what we can talk about then is is a pluralism of Christian philosophy. There isn't one single thing that we would call Christian philosophy. Well, some people thought, you know, Thomism is, you know, the, the official philosophy. That was never the case. Um, okay. There, there, there was a strong endorsement of it in Attorney Patras. You know, it was sort of like and, first and, among equals kind of rank. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, for people maybe not familiar with, with Thomism, uh, what is what is Thomism? Hmm. So the, the, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, this, you know, great um, 13th century Dominican thinker, who you know in his own time well, got got himself in quite some hot water with the Bishop of Paris. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a whole funny story there. Um, luckily, it didn't turn tragic, but um, yeah, for you know, in, in a lot of Catholic circles, people kind of put it forth in the 20th century like Thomas was the Catholic philosopher. And there were a lot of Catholic philosophers who were followers of, of Thomas Aquinas. So, you know, Jacques Maritain, um, over here in the States, you know, Mortimer Adler would be a great example. Um, but it's not as if he ever enjoyed an official, he is the guy kind of status. 
um, there, there never was any one single person who was, was raised to that, that level. And if we look at, you know, a recent encyclical about about this, uh, John Paul II's Fides et Ratio, which is, you know, from, if I remember right, like two, 2000 or so, um, he explicitly, you know, names about something like 16 different people to look to as examples. Um, he, he manages to cover a wide range um, one of the few people he doesn't talk about is Maurice Blondell, but there's a theory that he doesn't do that because the entire document is so so Blondellian in its in its nature. But he says there has to be a pluralism to, to Christian philosophy. Um, we we can't um, we can't come up with an official uh, philosophy that would would encompass everything that we need. So this is a good point. This is a good point to sort of transition to. Well, why should we care about these guys? Um, they were from the 1930s, and they're all dead now. So, you know, what do they have to say to us in the present? Um, one thing I, I do want to point out that that makes it a little bit harder to get into these debates now for those who are studying philosophy is that philosophy um, has meant a lot of different things historically, and in, in the 20th century, we see Anglo-American philosophy ending up getting dominated by analytic philosophy, and then in other places by what, you know what we call continental philosophy. And they tend to pare back what you know two things. They tend to pare back what they think philosophy ought to be or what it ought to be doing, and they also, at least the analytics, don't engage many of the historical figures. Whereas in the past, you, you did philosophy in part by studying. The, the philosophers, and then trying to see if you could, you know, go go beyond them. But you actually had to read some Plato and read some, you know, Hume and, and read some different people. So um, the thinkers in these debates have a somewhat different conception. When they're using the term philosophy, they mean something a bit different than what some people teaching intro to philosophy might mean today. Um, they... Um, they see, you know, they see philosophy of the present as as necessarily having to engage with the key thinkers of the past, and then trying to systematically work matters out, and potentially encompass everything. So, you know, they were from a time when philosophy, you know, was done with a capital P, you might say, and uh, <laughs> they, they, you know, they they had this sort of viewpoint that. Um, if it's important, philosophy had better be able to extend itself to it. Not, not like you know the, the, some of the philosophers of today who say, no, no, you know, we have to confine ourselves to just very few, few topics. Um, so now, all that said, why, why is this stuff still relevant? So the issues that these guys were engaging with about Christian philosophy, they haven't gone away, and they're not going to go away, because every new generation has to, you might say, relive them out. Um, every every new batch of philosophers it, it, or, or Christians who want to start, you know, doing some sort of systematic, uh, rational, reflexive thinking, they're going to be they're going to be posed with these same sort of problems, and we we always begin, you know, more or less yeah, from a position of beginners, uh, from from ground zero. So it's good to see what what other people have done before us. Um, it's also worth, you know, looking at these guys because this was the main time in history when you had the most really smart people um, arguing with each other about 
this this particular set of issues. So, you know, by by studying the debates, we get to sort of peel back um, the layers of history and see these guys at, at their prime arguing with each other over these these things that they've been thinking about for decades. Um, so. The better literature, I'll say this too, the better literature that grapples with the issues of Christian philosophy today um, or tries to develop Christian philosophy tends to be somewhat more highly informed by the thinkers and sometimes even the works in these debates. So there's kind of an underground current of discussion that's been going on since the 1930s that references these these texts. So so it's good to, um, you know, it's good to, to dig into them, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And as you guys can tell, there's a a whole lot of information there. <laughs> so let's do this, Dr. Sandler, if you don't mind, we will go ahead and take our first take our first break and uh sure. do you want me to go ahead and, and open up the the phone lines now and give people a a chance to call in or you you want to hold off a little bit on that or Well there's a little bit more I'd like to to hit on okay. um, after the break, um, but I'll, I'll try to keep it pretty brief so we have plenty not of time. Not a problem. Yeah, not not a problem. I wasn't sure if you were done there or not, but uh, we'll go ahead and take a take a break. Real, uh, you know what? Let's let's do this. Let's just have you go ahead and finish up uh, with that what you're doing there, and then when you're done, we'll go ahead and take a break, and then that'll give people a chance to to call in. So go go ahead. Okay. Keep, uh, Keep, keep walking us yeah. through this. This is really good stuff. That sounds good. So, you know, I've, I've said all this stuff about these debates, and and it's it's important then, you know, to say, well, what were they actually debating about? Who debated? And, you know, what were the, the sort of dividing lines between them? Um, so I, as I was thinking about it and, you know, sort of prepping for this, I kind of wavered back and forth about how many – key figures there really were or key positions there were in the debates and and uh i'd say there's like seven or eight um there was a, a very boldly put rationalist position of this guy he was a young historian at the time kind of a young turk uh emil brahier who was arguing against the possibility of christian philosophy and then there was this much more nuanced position against christian philosophy of this guy leon brunschvig who um was a very important thinker at the time, but but not too many people read him now. Um, there were some Catholics who were uh, against Christian philosophy as well, these neo-scholastics like uh, Pierre Mondonet and Ferdinand von Steinbergen, who was a young guy at the, at the time. Um, again, not, not too much um, influence these days. But then there was Etienne Gelsol, and Etienne Gelsol is a major Catholic thinker of the 20th century. Um, he's known as being sort of a neo-Thomist or an existentialist Thomist. Um, he argues a position for Christian philosophy. There's a closely connected Thomist position of uh, Jacques Maritain, uh, who didn't like being called a neo-Thomist. He said he'd rather be called a paleo-Thomist than a neo-Thomist, uh, but he really is a neo-Thomist. Um, and he was very close with with, with Gilso. Uh, Blondel, uh, Maurice Blondel, developed his very own original position on it. Uh, for Christian philosophy, and uh, another guy who who's really worth mentioning is Gabriel Marcel, the uh, French phenomenologist and existentialist, who uh, develops a, a very interesting position as well. There's a lot of other positions that that don't have quite such a big influence. Um, 
there is one Augustinian scholar, uh, Michel Surio, who argues for Christian philosophers, another major Thomist, uh, Antonin Sertianch, I'm really partial to, uh, but he's, he's a little bit tangential in the debates. Um, another is this guy, Lev Shestov, who who um, is, just comes in out of left field around 1935 and <laughs> writes a whole book um, called Athens and Jerusalem. Uh, and he's arguing against Christian philosophy. He's, he's a, a, an existentialist. He's a very interesting guy. So I want to hit on just a few of these positions. We don't have time to, to go into all of them, but I want to get a little flavor of what these, these positions might be like. Yeah, so this guy does. Real quick, those who are who have called in and are hanging on the line, just uh, we see you. Keep keep hanging in there, and we'll we'll bring you up uh, shortly. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Doctor yeah. Sadler. Yeah, that's okay. I, um, I I promise to keep this to about five minutes. So I'm going to try to go through this and give you like one big idea for each of them uh, uh, that you can sort of take home with you. Absolutely. So we, we have these yeah, we have these two rationalists, uh, Brehier and Brunswick. And Brehier, he is just totally against Christian philosophy. He says, you know, either it's going to be a philosophy that's that's essentially dictated by a magisterium telling you how you can do philosophy, in which case it's not philosophy, or it's not going to be that way, and we'll see historically some sort of development where Christianity or Christian life or experience has given rise to a new way of thinking. And then he asserts that never happened. Anything that we find that's philosophical in, say, Augustine or Thomas came from Plato or Aristotle. Everything else is just sort of Christian dross. Um, Brunswick is much more sophisticated. Brunswick has this this kind of um, this kind of perspective that I think you see a lot of people having today, where he says, you know, Christianity, religion in general, that was okay for primitives. You know, they they needed that for for aiding their thinking along the way, um, but now we're past that. We're you know we we can leave that sort of you know childhood behind. You know, the, the 17th century is kind of a a turning point for that. Um, reason wasn't even really developed in the he claims. So that's you know that's another way to, to think about it. And that's another important challenge. Jossot, um addresses Brehier uh, in in a Socratic dialogue in the middle of the debate. Um, he just like demolishes him. But here, here's what what Jossot says. He says, um, first off, Brehier is uh, looking for Christian philosophy where he find it. Um, there isn't in history we don't find philosophy that's actually dictated by by some sort of magisterium. Um, what we do find is that there are in fact um, all sorts of philosophical systems or, or doctrines that do develop out of Christianity. And how does that happen? Well, in the the concrete human person, it's not as if you know we talk about like faith versus reason sometimes or um, philosophy and Christianity as if these are things that actually exist out there somewhere. But but they're not. They have their existence in persons. So, you know, philosophy as an activity is something that's carried out by a philosopher. Christianity is something that's actually a lived comportment of a person. And so when you have a Christian philosopher developing Christian philosophy, 
there's there's a, a, a sort of a concrete entanglement of those two things within the person, and you can't rigidly distinguish them unless that person has you know managed to compartmentalize themselves to be cured. Bent. So he he says uh, at that point in time that that Augustine's you know Credo it's Intelligon the I believe in order that I may understand and, and Anselm's um, Fides Quirens Leftum or Faith Seeking Understanding are the two formulas of Christian philosophy. Maritain is going to second also. He's going to make a distinction between the the essence or nature of philosophy, which is an abstract thing. And then the concrete, real state that philosophy takes in determinate times and in, in actual people who are doing philosophy. So he says philosophy, um, in its essence, is neither Christian nor non-Christian. But when philosophy exists within a Christian state, then we have we have Christian philosophy. Um, and so Christianity is able to bring a lot of interesting ideas onto the scene that philosophy grapples with. Um, and, and philosophy wouldn't grapple with it if it hadn't been for the historical existence of, of uh, the Christian faith. Blondel is a whole different can of worms, or kettle of fish, or whatever metaphor we want to use. He actually not only criticizes the rationalists, he, he directs even more criticism towards Gilson and Maritain. And um, so I'm just going to skip over his criticism of, of the rationalists, because that's sort of like shooting fish in a barrel for him. He criticizes Gilson and Maritain for turning to history and for saying, we're going to look back to, say, Thomas Aquinas or, or you know, Augustine, and we're going to find Christian philosophy there, and we'll just sort of like bring it up to date in the present. That's what he takes them as doing. Um, and he says, that's not going to work for the modern age. We need a Christian philosophy, a new Christian philosophy, that's really going to be adequate to the demands, the legitimate demands of, of modern thought. Um, and so he works out this whole idea of Christian philosophy as sort of critical philosophy, self-critical philosophy, philosophy that comes to realize its own insufficiencies and thereby opens itself up to something greater than itself and, and, and does so without you know, necessarily having to distort it or make it fit into its own structures. Um, you might say it's it's a case of philosophy being pushed to transcend itself. Um, so that's that's the way he views it. And and like I said before, Gilson and and Maris Hen, um, they and Blondel thought that they were completely opposed to each other when really they weren't. Um, it didn't have to be because because their viewpoints are actually quite complementary. To each other, um, so that's that's maybe. Did I get it in under five minutes? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think I think you did. Yeah, now there's, there's a lot more to it than that, but yeah. So let's let's take the the break and then I'll I'll, I'll take some calls. Okay, sounds good, folks. Uh, callers, to hang in there with us. We need to take a break. Give Doctor uh, Fedler a minute or two to. Uh, catch his breath and get a drink and uh, we will be back in just a moment so stay with us we're people who will die without god's word left to ourselves we will perish forever so expositional preaching is what god has given us to tell us the truth about himself and ourselves to tell us the gospel expositional preaching is critical when it comes to being a faithful pastor when it comes to being uh, a faithful leader of god's people 
uh, as pastors, we're called to not just preach, but to preach God's Word, to preach the Gospel. Expositional preaching is making the point of a passage of Scripture the point of your message. Making the point of the biblical text the point of the sermon. It's exposing God's Word to God's people. Well, I don't have a mandate to preach what I want to preach. I have a mandate from God to preach His Word. And, and the best way to do that, I think the most faithful way to preach the Scriptures is to preach them expositions, expound what God has already said to His people. Right there in one of his last letters to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word. Uh, in fact, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, you know, who is, is going to appear, do this. So before you do anything else, Timothy, do this. Preach the word. It helps people to actually understand the Bible for themselves. They can actually get from the text exactly what the text says. And as a result, they learn to read the Bible for themselves. It's deriving uh, the meaning of the text and giving it to the people as a banquet, as a, as a great supper on which to feed. Uh, for we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's exposition, preach, exposition preaching that helps us give the people every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the end of the day, I want my people reliant upon God's word, not upon my cleverness, not upon my personality, not upon uh, what they might think are particularly witty or insightful ways that I may communicate, but upon the word itself, and that's what will sustain their soul. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, folks, we are back. We have Dr. Sadler with us. Uh, if you would like to call in and ask a question, the number is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We've got a little over 30 minutes, so let's go ahead and uh, bring our first caller on. Can I get your name and where you're from? Hello? Yes, uh-huh. Oh, uh, yeah, my name's, my name's JJ, and I'm from um, Santa Clarita, California. Wonderful. Thank you uh, so much for listening and calling in. And uh, I guess you have a question for Dr. Sadler or a comment? Yeah, so um, I, I apologize, Dr. Sadler, if you've already addressed anything um, related to my question here. I, I just now saw the link to the show on your Twitter uh, about 10 minutes ago, so I'm a bit late here. Um but um so I was wondering what 
uh, this is sort of related to to your book, uh, I I think. I was sort of wondering what your general opinions were on uh, Reginald Garigou Lagrange and whether the attacks levied upon him by people like um, Henry de Lubac and Balthazar were just or not. And then secondly, and this is a little bit more technical, um, I was wondering what you think generally about the uh, pure nature debate within Thomism and if you've read uh, Lawrence Feingold's book on this uh, subject. Well, let me answer the, the second one first because I can okay. easily uh, dispatch with that by saying, no, I haven't read his book. Um, okay. And uh, it's, um, you know, I mean, this is, it's interesting because when I titled the book, I titled the Christian philosophy debates rather than debate. And I think there's quite a few, um, actually I push a lot with, with CUA press to get them to add that little S. The reason I did that was because there isn't just one single debate between like two sides um, involved in that. And I think it's the same thing with the notion of pure nature. That's, that's an idea that's been kicked around um, quite a bit. Um, not just among Thomas, but even if we just confine ourselves to Thomas, those those discussions and the relationship between nature and the supernatural were being hashed out um, over the course of a century. So um, I'm more familiar with these these, these French Thomas, um, so it's, it's good that I'll get to answer about Gary Goulagrange. Um because that's that's more where my my area lies. There there are so many people who do work in Thomism that, uh, and I'm not saying this to justify by not reading well, you know, enough uh, enough uh, Anglo-American sources, but uh, you just can't keep up with with all the stuff. You have to do a kind of triage. So to go to the um, Garrigou Lagrange, I'm, I'll, I'll say it in this in this way: I'm not a fan. Um, I like his book on the uh, the interior life quite a bit, but he was um, when it came to discussing philosophical topics um, in Catholic circles in the 20th century, he was a deleterious influence. He used his post to sort of campaign against major Catholic philosophers, particularly Blondell, whose work he admitted he totally didn't understand, but but went after him anyway, um, and went after Maritain, went after a whole bunch of other people. Um, I think that that, you know, it's hard to it's hard to even attribute when it comes to his criticisms of other people to attribute them to just um not having gotten it. There's a kind of, you know, I am going to take over um sort of attitude in, involved there. And so um there are some people who really like him. Um the people who really like him these days tend to really, really like him. Um for the most part he's he's been I'd say justly neglected. Um, if I if I have to, you know, well, not not if I have to. If I get to to spend time reading um, Thomas thinkers of the French Thomas thinkers of the 20th century, I'd always rather spend my time with Maritain or Gilson or um, especially with Anton and Sertiange because um, there's an openness there. There's a, a receptivity um, that is kind of lacking. Gerigou Lagrange fits into this spectrum of what we call anti-modernist thinkers. And, you know, there is this, this um, 
there was this issue of modernism that came up, and it's not quite the same thing as what happened in Protestant circles of fundamentalism and modernism. It's it's a, it's a different thing in the Catholic circles. And Garrigou Lagrange, you know, very clearly placed himself at one extreme with that, and he ended up ruling out a lot of really great um, productive Catholic thought that was recognized as such, you know, in the broader mainstream. Um, under under the, the sort of aspect of, of calling people modernists, for example, what he did with Blondel, um, who, who Pius X actually, whose orthodoxy Pius X affirmed uh, personally. Um, so you know, yeah, that's that's the long answer to to that. Um, do I think the criticisms of him are are, are on base for the most part? Yeah. Um, but it's 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 sort of like getting into I, I wouldn't I wouldn't advise unless somebody's really interested in those those sorts of issues, um, hat, you know rehashing them out and, and going back to all the source texts to try to determine which 20th century uh, Catholic thinker arguing with another about these sorts of things is actually in the right because there's so many other other things to to spend time on. Right. Right. Um, can I can I follow up real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, we got plenty plenty time, so feel free. Okay. Um, yeah, I I would say I'm I mean I'm sort of uh, I'm sort of in in the middle there uh, as as far as what you said. Um, but to follow up, I guess I would just say um, for all of the um, I guess for all of the just criticisms of uh, you know like the 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 dry manualist uh Thomas traditions and stuff like that and there are just criticisms um oh, yeah. would you say that like for for all of its faults uh it did provide uh the 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 church with a sort of rigorous systematic um defense of of the faith and that in the years in which it has um lost its influence We've seen sort of a a weakening in i guess the intellectual um uh, defense of our faith well, I would say and this probably isn't going to be too pleasing to some of the people out out there about this um there really wasn't that much rigor in the manualist tradition there was rigidity. But that's not the same thing as philosophical rigor, which actually has to be able to, you know, read read a a, a person and, and make sense out of what they're saying, and not just sort of shoehorn it into some some categories. And I think that um, part of the reason why the manualist tradition fell out of favor was because, you know, there were decades of people just, you know working with this stuff and being like, oh my gosh, I have to read this again and this is this is all I've got to work with. Um, I mean, when you read through these things, like Pedro de Cook is a great example. You know, you read his, his works. Um, they're beyond dry. Um, and and when, when you look at them and you look at the distortions of not even just modern thinkers who, yeah, maybe, maybe distorting modern thinkers, you know, somebody might say that's okay because they're, you know, they're opposed to the faith and all that. But the distortion of actual Christian thinkers in their their works, um, I haven't found a single manualist whose whose uh, you know analysis of Thomas comes anywhere c- close to just reading the Summa 
and, and paying attention to what's in the summa. And I would always go back to, to that. Is, is there a sort of a, a, a you know, loosey goosiness lax to, to a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, thinking in Catholic circles? Yeah, and and um, I'm I'm a product of the terrible catechesis that took place in the 1970s and 1980s. That wasn't part of product of, of reaction against the the rigidity. I mean, I didn't learn anything in CCD um, other than you know God loves you and be nice to each other and and uh, you know Jesus liked to do carpentry. Um, and that's just terrible, you know, people not actually learning anything. But I, I don't think that the the manualist um, approach to things was very productive. And it's not something that um, it's not something that that can actually provide anything other than sort of like an oasis in, in the middle of a, a modernity. We need much you know, much more flexible, and I don't mean flexible in the sense of just like accommodating themselves to anything. I mean, I mean flexible in the sense of, of taking philosophy and, and applying it very rigorously to, to everything. The way that you see, you know, for example, um, you know, John Paul II in his, in his encyclicals, he's a philosopher doing. Um, the way that you see uh, Maritain trying to grapple with, with contemporary issues or Blondell doing that sort of thing. Um yeah, my you know my my biggest beef though with with Gerigou Lagrange is not that he was a manualist. Um, it's that his criticisms of other people were so off base, and he he was so trenchant about them. Um, there's a kind of repugnance to, to that. You're like, why are you why are you you know so bent on on you know rejecting this. Um, that said, I, I do have to mention, I really do like his book, uh, The Interior Life. I think that he was a guy who understood that stuff really, really well. Um, and, he, and, you know, in, in the, the last analysis, Garagou Lagrange, uh, for all of his smart, for all of his uh, his faults, way smarter guy than I am. So, you know, so, you know who am I to criticize? But, you know. <laughs> All right, Collins, does that, uh, does that kind of help clarify? And, uh, yeah, thank questions? you. Thank you so much. That that was great. Sure. All right. Thank you for calling. Call back any time, brother. All right, uh, Dr. Sadler, quick quick question. We, we, we've got about 20 minutes, folks. Uh, those who would like to, to call and ask another question, feel free, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. I was thinking a little bit here, Dr. Sadler, maybe with a little bit of the time we have left, we could we could talk about how does this relate today uh, in some ways, if you have the new atheists, for example, I'm thinking of, um, well, even someone like Stephen Hawking, you know, in his book, mm-hmm. Grand Design, he talks about how uh, philosophy is dead, how uh, it's useless, uh, et cetera. Lawrence Krauss, of course, he, he makes the same kind of comments. Kind of in a modern day, uh, and today, how do we respond to some of the critics that philosophy has nothing to say on these issues, that only science uh, can speak to these issues? How would you how would oh. you say we should respond to some of those? Yeah, so that's a whole different um, question that I, I thought was going to get asked. Um, 
Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's you know, it's one thing when you have philosophy being opposed to to Christian thought or Christian faith or something like that, and and then you sure. say, well, you can't really be a philosopher. It's a whole other thing when even philosophy is getting swept off of the 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 dais, so to speak, and people are saying right. just science, you know. Um, so that ends up being something that that for a while we've called scientism. Um, and just calling it that doesn't, of course, you know, you know, <laughs> really address it. Um, but but it's this this view that science is able to provide answers, or empirical study is able to provide answers to, to everything, and all the other stuff like philosophy or religion should should essentially be swept away. The older name for that is positivism, and I don't mean just the logical positivism of the 19 you know 20s and, and 30s with with the Vienna Circle. I mean sort of the positivism of of uh, Comte in France and Spencer in England, people who nobody reads anymore because because they're um, they're they're kind of um, implausible, uh, but who you know were major cultural forces at the time. And Comte had this theory of the three stages. That first you start out with you know the religious stage, and that's the way people do their thinking, and you know they're kind of into all the mumbo jumbo and and you know pretty pictures and stuff like that that comes along with that, and then people get metaphysical, they they get philosophical, right, and they start believing in things like the forms or universals or you know whatever we, we've got going on, uh, and then they finally in the modern era get to get away from that all that sort of previous stuff and they enter a scientific phase. And this, this is what he's saying in the 1800s, right? So this, this whole notion is not very new that the new atheists are relying upon. Um, and we're, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to deal with anything that isn't either empirically verified or can be understood to be sort of a logical entailment of, of either the way we think or the way things are. Um, everything else we can sort of just foreclose. Well, Every time you try to do that, you end up um, with a couple of different problems, one of which is just don't even worry about religion. Can we adequately take account of moral life and moral experience and the fact that we you know, um, think that some things are right and wrong from that sort of perspective? Um, and the, the simple answer is no. Um, we, can, we can certainly you know, come up with sociologies of morals the way that some people have done. Um, but it can't actually tell you which one you ought to accept, or why would there be any reasonable uh, position, you know, that you could you could work out. And part of the problem with this this science is everything attitude is that it can't adequately take account of itself. Uh, in order to do so, it needs some sort of philosophical perspective. And as soon as you do that, you start realizing just how. Um, just how um, dogmatic and, and in many ways sketchy these these um, these scientifist or positivist positions turn out to be, um, you know, and, and we're running into. I, I'm not going to say this, this somehow justifies sweeping all all research away, but we're running into some very interesting revelations these days about how. Um, you know, social scientific research, much of it is, is not reproducible, we're finding out. There's been a lot of um, fudging of data in, in uh, even medical uh, journals, you know, where, where it's supposed to be, you know, much more hard biological science than, than soft uh, social science. Um, and so, you know, we should, we should be a little bit more 
um, circumspect about that, and and you need philosophy to do that. You, you can't the science the, the sciences because there's no science with a capital S. The sciences don't really have um, a, a sort of reflexive conception of, of just what science is. As soon as they start doing that, they're they're in the realm of philosophy, whether they realize it or or recognize it or not. Um, and then, you know, it's a question of whether they're doing good philosophy or, or, or not so good philosophy. And that's, it's really good to have a historical perspective on this because you can see the same stuff, the same tropes coming up over and over again. So, yeah, same, same kind of criticisms and even even almost self-refuting, right? The idea that uh, all truths must be somehow found through the scientific method and it's not found in science and it's not true. So I think, um, and I've, I've actually, I've read a lot of atheist philosophers that really um, have issues with that. Uh, I think it was Massimo Pigliusi wrote a whole article on the, the cosmos. Oh, series, yeah, was, yeah. Yeah, talk, talk, maybe talk yeah, about that for a second. Yeah, Massimo is very good on that sort of stuff. And he is, um, he's somebody I, I very much like and, and respect because um, he'll call them on a carpet for that sort of thing, you know. There's, I think, there's some people in, and this happens in both, like you know, Christian communities and atheist communities, who are like, well, somebody's on our side. I'm not gonna, you know, not gonna criticize them because, you know, go team. Um, and uh, that's that's bad, both for atheism and for Christianity. Um, right. When you have it, when you have a community of inquiry, you want to actually. Be, be testing things. You want to be able to I see like whether they, they stand up to things. Yeah, I mean, think about the in Christianity, the notion of you know discernment. Um, not right. everybody's feelings about you know uh, the, the the scripture verses for today's readings are necessarily you know um, based on coming directly <laughs> from the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of it's coming from you know people wanting to engage in some wishful thinking or you know stuff like that. And it's the right. same thing in the atheist. They need people like Massimo to say, you know, you guys are really going overboard with this sort of stuff. Um, so, so I think he's doing a, a great job uh, with that sort of thing. Um, but you know, you know, who somebody who, um, if he were on the scene today, or if they were reading his text, would just tear into the new atheists is is Nietzsche, because really? Nietzsche, who's, who's who's you know strongly anti-Christian, right? Um, mm -hmm. He considers the sort of modern scientific attitude about science can can deal with all of our problems as having taken Christianity to yet a higher level. It just took God out of the picture and substituted nature or reason or something like that in its place. And um, you know, so he talks about the man of science as really being, in essence, the new incarnation of the priest. Um, wow. And, and so you know, there's there's atheism and then there's atheism. You know, do you have Sam Harris's atheism or do you have uh, Nietzsche's atheism? If I had to be an atheist, I'd pick Nietzsche, you know, because he's at least wow. much more you know, uh, deep and interesting to to read. Um, but that's the, I mean, that's we've really gotten off on a tangent with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll let you. We, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, go ahead and kind of continue where you wanted to go and wrap us up, maybe some of the, the loose ends. Uh, phone lines are open if anyone else would like to call in to talk, but uh got ten, 10 minutes or so. Dr. Sadler, I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you and let you go where you want to go yeah. with that. 
Well, you know, if um, if you don't mind, I I wouldn't mind um, talking a little bit about the story of the book, which is is uh, sure. kind of interesting. Um, yeah, because I, I think a lot of times people, you know, they think that we just sort of like sit in our 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 garret and and tap out a book or something like that, and it's it's almost the opposite. You do much of the work for research like this um, outside of your office. So um, the book actually gets started in like 2003. It didn't get wow. published until 2011. Um, so we're talking about a pretty big and, and long-term project. And I was I, I defended my dissertation on, on Blondell, um, who I was interested in quite a bit. And most of Blondell's stuff isn't translated. So I was talking with this other guy, Adrian Pabst, um, and he he sent he was at the Institut Catholique de Paris at the time, so he sent me some photocopies of Blondel's stuff, and he said, "Why don't you translate this?" And it turned out that those were some of the documents from the debates, and I didn't know anything about the debates at the time, so I I read them and I was like, "Yeah, this is pretty interesting stuff," and there were a lot of um, references to other people, so I thought, well, "I better find out what these other guys are are talking about." So I went to Notre Dame Library because I was an hour and a half from Notre Dame. And I tracked down those articles and photocopied them, and then they referred to other articles, and they referred to this debate going on. And I was like, well, I wonder what that's all about. So for about, you know, I would say about two years off and on, going back and forth, I would go to the Notre Dame Library. Uh, at that time, I was working at Indiana State Prison. There's a whole story about that that we could talk about. Wow. Time. <laughs> and so after work, I would, I would drive down from Michigan City to, to South Bend, the library for, you know, three, four hours. Uh, I put a lot of money into photocopies at the time. And I start, you know, I, I, at a certain point, I just like would go to a, a journal, like the Revue de Metaphysique or Morale, which is a very important French um, philosophy journal. And I just started reading everything from 1920 to 1940, looking for any sort of references to Christian philosophy. And I found a ton of stuff. And so anytime I'd find something, I'd, you know, put a little index card in it and take it to the photocopier. And so it was fortunate that Notre Dame was there because they have such great library holdings um, that aren't, aren't, you know, necessarily the case in, in many other um, research universities. So the more and more that I was, I was researching, the wider and wider the, the scope of this project got. I got kind of obsessed with it. You know, I think probably people got tired of hearing me talk about it for a while, you know. Um, and, and so I, I just, um, and then I, the question is, well, what should I do with this? And I realized as I was looking at the English language um, discussions of this, that unlike with Italians or Germans or Spanish, all of whom knew that there were, you know, this, this huge debate going on and there were about 50 people involved in, in Anglophone literature, they thought it was just a debate between Gilson and Brehier or Gilson and von Steinbergen. And um, even, you know, big scholars like Joseph Owens, a uh, major, you know, redemptorist Catholic thinker, um, he really didn't know anything about Blondel's role. He, he relied on some secondary literature, um, which, which said Blondel wasn't that important, and so I don't think he read it. Um, and I don't think he read many of the other people as well. And so I was like, well, you know, Maybe what I'll do is I'll translate not just Blondell, but a lot of these other guys, and 
Um, that way, you know, people who, who can't read French, because, you know, most people don't, it's kind of, I, I shouldn't say it's a dying language, uh, certainly not on the air where people can hear it, but um, it is actually, in some respects, a dying language uh, compared to what it was. Um, you know, Anglo-American philosophers are, are not going to go back and, and read things in French, so if I can translate them, then this opens up the possibility for them to say, oh, yeah, there's this stuff there. So I picked out, I think, 12 documents, and I ended up translating those. And that's just a small portion of the stuff from, from these debates. Most of the, the documents are still untranslated. And then I wrote about a 100-page um, historical introduction to the debates, which is like a, its own monograph, and I created a chronological bibliography. So, uh, you know, instead of just being a bibliography like you'd find at the back of most books, it's done by year. So you can see year by year by year who's writing about this and, you know, not necessarily what they have to say, but at least where you would go to to find this stuff out. And so the whole idea was this is supposed to open up the possibility for studying or researching or thinking about these debates um, in a way that hasn't been done for for English-speaking people, um, that has been done for German and, and Italian and you know Spanish, uh, like I said before. Um, so it would make it would make scholarship possible, and it would be you know if, if other people were interested in seeing what these guys had to say, they could buy the book and and check it out as well. Um, so what was what was kind of interesting is there was a point too where um, when you write a book, a scholarly book, it has to go through a reviews process. And so you have these reviewers, and, and sometimes they're very realistic and down-to-earth, and sometimes they're a little bit less so. And so um, I, had, I had some reviewers. I had four reviewers at one stage for the book, and, and one of them was saying, there's too much Blondel, not enough Maritain. And the other reviewer was saying, too much Maritain, not enough Blondel, and <laughs> You know, at wow. one point, Catholic, Catholic University of America Press passed on the book after I'd put like wow. uh, six, six years of work into it. And I wrote, a, I fired off this this sort of angry, um, well, let me tell you something kind of email <laughs> to the editor. <laughs> and I was like, your reviewers don't know what they're talking about. They're wanting contradictory stuff. This one's complaining about this, but here's how I would address that. And I wouldn't have, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have done that. If I if I wanted to, um, you know, be be nice and 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 uh, stay friends with everybody, but that was exactly the thing I needed to do because then he looked at it and he was like, "Yeah, these reviewers are actually off on this stuff. Let's let's uh, take this back." Wow. Yeah. Then the committee approved the book and it and it went through. <laughs> Sometimes that's the sort of thing that you have to do. Um, but you know, it helps to be it helps to have immersed yourself in this stuff enough to get obsessed with it and think that it's worth bringing to light because if you don't do that sort of thing, you're not going to put in the kind of, you know, uncompensated, thankless hours to, you know, bring somebody's voice out of the 1930s into the, the 2000s. Um, it's just not the thing a normal person would do. <laughs> so, but that's, wow, that's a really... Yeah, I think yeah, if, you, that's if a... you actually, like... If you sat down with a whole bunch of people who've, who've written books that you like and you actually got the story of how the book took shape, you're going to hear crazy stuff. <laughs> wow. 
that's really it's it's, it's kind of neat to see kind of the beyond the scenes look at that and uh, just just how that all came together. Has it, has it sold pretty well? I mean, are the seminaries? I would imagine a lot of seminaries would have their their people reading that. Yeah, it's mostly um, the part of the problem was um, academic books are priced kind of high. And so it's not right. the sort of thing that somebody pick up for beach reading, you know. Um, and before right. it can go to soft cover, it has to sell a number of hardcover ones. So it's got to do the hard sell first, and then it can do the the more popular thing. But yeah, it sold it sold all right. Um, I've been thinking about writing a companion piece, which would be more um, more suited to a general audience, um, talking about Christian philosophy, something like a textbook almost. Uh, that would incorporate oh, wow. the people from the debates and then you know, also talk about, you know, people before that and after that, some of the some of the key thinkers. Um but uh when I when I pitched that to one press they, they actually ended up like telling me they wanted me to write a different kind of book. So it's been it's it's a project that's just been laying fallow as a plan for a while. But I but I think I you know, in the next uh, couple of years or so, I'll probably resuscitate that idea um, and get cracking at it because it's it's such a it's such a, an interesting bunch of guys who were involved in this whose voices deserve to be heard. And that's the nice thing about translating. If you're a translator, you don't have to come up with any original thought of your own. Um, all you got to do is make sure that you can have this other person who's really smart say what what they're saying in your language. That's that's your job, you know. It's, it's sort of like uh, preaching, right? I mean, if you're if you're a really good preacher, um, you don't have to like improve on the scriptures. I mean, if you are, you know, probably there's something going wrong. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Ah, I like that. That's good. What uh, what I'll uh, got about a minute here left or so. Uh, what what kind of stuff should we be be looking for? In the future, you got any speaking events coming up, or or any anything going on that people can connect with you in the the next little future well, here? Actually, actually um, this is up in the you know the Hudson Valley of New York. We're finishing up our understanding um, nine month lecture series. I've been doing these lectures on on classical theories of anger. We're finishing up that this month, but I've actually got some big news. Um, we are moving from New York to Milwaukee, moving back to Milwaukee, which is, which is our hometown. Um, and so I don't, ha- I don't actually have any other speaking events lined up for the fall in part because we're, we're doing the move. And once I get back in Wisconsin, um, I'm going to be sending out a lot of, uh, you know, pitches to, to other places in that area. Cause I've got to build up a whole new speaking network, um, in that area, but but it should be a lot of fun. So, yeah, when, when are you guys to, moving back there? Are you going going back right in the right in the middle of winter? Or? No, in October, um, which oh. is getting close to winter for Wisconsin. So, yeah, I I love the snow where I live at. We just we never get it. People think I'm crazy because I grew up in Utah and we, we used to get a lot of snow there. People think I'm oh. crazy, but man, I've always wanted to live. Uh, Somewhere like New York or Milwaukee or something like that to get some snow. Well, you'll so. have to come and visit us once we're we're set up, you know. Yeah, that would be great. 
Well, Dr. Sadler, we need to have you back on again. I will uh, get in touch with you through email, and uh, I'd love to keep continuing this this series on. It's it's so informative, and uh, you're this guy I highly respect. So appreciate you coming well, on thanks. the show. Yeah, it's a great show. So I, I love seeing all the, the different um, topics that you guys cover. Yeah, we had a range, don't we? <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and look forward to speaking with you again soon. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. God bless. All right, folks, uh, join us next week. I will actually be interviewing my pastor, uh, Dave Keene, uh, from Park Baptist Church, and we're going to be looking at church membership and why uh, it is important for Christians to be part of the local body. So uh, until next time, God bless and take care.